0: If you like the content and you would like it to keep coming, you should still know that this podcast is just one of the tools that we use here at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose has always been to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife to ensure that they have habitats forever here in North Carolina. The podcast is just a byproduct to further that mission. To be a part of the team in the fight for the conservation mission, you should visit our website at www.3riverslandtrust.org. Just had myself a slice of ghost smoked ghost pepper cheese for lunch that Crystal brought back for me on her annual Hellbender Week Cryptobranchus alleganiensis. The Hellbender. It's our
1: largest salamander. They were, uh, they're about three inches. No, less than that. Centimeters. Three centimeters off of the record. The state record hellbender. Yep. 35 total. It's
0: a pile of them. They're yeah. an indicator. So the reason we're talking about hellbenders, they're an indicator species of quality habitat, and in this case, water quality. This podcast here. Describe
1: is, a Describe a hellbender. Describe a hellbender first? Yeah.
0: They, uh, Uh you liked the nickname that Karen Allman threw out the other day, the snot otter. Yeah. Um, they're, uh, they're very prehistoric looking, flat headed, big mouthed, orange mouth. They actually open their mouth and wiggle their tongue as a lure to get critters to come close enough for them to snap down on them. they're just a giant salamander, right? You know, I don't know what more to say about them than that. They're not pretty, but they are awesome.
1: Yeah, I think the one, the big one they caught was 23 inches long. In my yeah.
0: aquatic ecology class in college, the professor's like, first person to catch a hellbender gets a check. I'm writing him a personal check. So everybody was like hardcore hunting while we were snorkeling, hunting for hellbenders. I was actually the person that caught it. And I remember me and Seth Snow, um, guy I went to school with, were kind of waiting around like not being a part of the class really <laughs> kind of over it for the day. It was, you know, it'd been a long week of snorkeling. We're just kind of wading around, like not participating. There's this huge flat rock. And I was like, Hey Seth, let's flip this rock. I got a feeling there's going to be one under it. And uh, so we're lifting the rock up and we both look at each other like, Holy crap. Cause we hadn't found one all week. And there's this monster hellbender, Bigger than my computer, like, lengthwise. Mm-hmm. I don't even know. We didn't measure it. Or maybe we did. I just don't remember. I've got a picture of me holding him. He's big. And there he is. And I was like, you hold the rock. I'm going to grab him. So Seth held the rock, and I grabbed that thing. And, uh, yeah, that was the first one that we got with the class. They're super cool. Super cool. But, anyways, the reason we're talking about that, hellbenders are an indicator species of quality habitat. And, in this case, water quality because they live in the water. Um, They're salamander. But the Habitat Summit, October 8th, is something that the Land Trust is putting together for the landowner, the land manager, the leaseholder, anybody who's interested in managing quality habitat and finding out about these indicator species and how to manage for them and how to better manage your wildlife populations and enhance habitat on your place This is going to be the time to come. This is a relatively cheap event to attend. It's going to have catered lunch. Um, What is it, $25? Yeah. To attend per person. And it's October 8th at the Charles Mack Citizen Center in Mooresville. And have you got the list of speakers handy? Keep rolling and I'll grab it. So we're going to run through this list of speakers that we've got. And while we're uh, doing that, we're gonna maybe tell you just a little bit about some of them. But I think it's a pretty great, great setup of folks that are are coming to this thing that are gonna be speaking. Um, the keynotes are gonna be Dr. Grant Woods, who you're gonna hear from in just a minute, and Kip Adams. Um, Grant Woods, he is a part of Growing Deer TV, um, television show, YouTube sensation, um, what what have you. And then Kip Adams is with formerly QDMA. That's now the National Deer Association. Um, and he's going to be giving a talk as well. Those are our keynote speakers. What's the uh, what's the lineup there, Sam?
1: Yeah, so there's going to be four sessions. And then uh, Grant and Kip during lunch are going to speak together. Um, so each session's going to have three speakers. And you get to kind of pick and choose the classes that you go to or the talks, the seminars that you go to during each session. And it's
0: also... Um, You get continuing education credits if you're a forester and you need those. Or if you're a pesticide license holder, um, there are continuing education credit hours for for those as well.
1: Yeah. So, session one's got Kip Adams. His talk is Habitat-Focused Approaches to Quality Deer Management. So, you can attend that or... Wildlife Management After Dark with Allison Medford and Olivia Munzer uh, from the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission. You'll hear a little bit from in a little bit. You'll hear a little bit from Allison here soon. Um, And then the third uh, talk during session one is the do's and don'ts of estate planning for land with Tanya Ostrich. I think that's it. Is that it? Ostrich. Uh, From Ostrich Law. And that's important. That's, you know... That's kind of in line with some of the work that we do in terms of planning um, and knowing what to do and making your land kind of work for you in that way. So um, anything to talk about on that one? Well, each one, if you
0: notice, they're they're very alike but very different. So there's one on basically game management for big game. Yeah. There's one on non-game species, bats, owls. There's one on estate planning for what are you going to do, what's your legacy going to be. Yeah. So... Of those three interests, I think anybody with any interest in land management can find something
1: out of those three. What's yeah. the next session? Session two, uh, the first talk is where conservation starts, and that's in regards to soil health. Uh, Dr. Grant Woods will talk about that here real quick, kind of a basic overview of his discussion. Um, the next being Friendly Fire with Jesse Wimberly, who you're going to hear from in a second. Jesse Wimberley and... Mark Bost. Mark Bost. Uh, are together going to talk about prescribed fire on the landscape as, ma- as a management tool. And then the other talk during session two is when napalm isn't an option, developing a plan for invasive species on your property with our good buddy Eli Beverly. Who
0: you've heard from before on the show. You'll hear from again at the summit. Go back and listen to it. I think it's called The Atomic Dog. That's yeah. The episode with, uh-huh. with Eli. And we talk a lot about invasive species on that one. And he's he's the resource for that. Yeah. So.
1: And uh yeah, that's that's definitely it. That's the pesticide credit yep, you get session
0: credit. there. You can get you get one credit hour for just attending, you get two credit hours if you attend his courses.
1: Well. Oh, is that right? Okay, mm-hmm. nice. Uh session three. This is after lunch when Grant and Kip are gonna speak together. Session three is leaving a legacy an introduction to conservation easements. That's with crystal, our director of conservation, um, our lawyer, Andy Abramson and Brent parks, our CPA. Um, which that's great. Uh, that's a lot
0: of minds there in that room. A lot of, a lot of thinkers.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's probably the number one question that our staff gets somebody calling and saying, what is a conservation easement? How does it work? Um, that's if you're interested in cons in conserving your property, that will be a 45-minute talk. That's going to tell you everything. This that is you your chance to get free tax advice. Yeah, pretty much.
0: I mean, we always say we're not lawyers or CPAs, and we can't give that. These people are. They can give that advi- advice. Along with Crystal,
1: who's been doing conservation easements for forever. So, yeah. Next, in session three, um, you could go to Crystal's and the introduction to conservation easements or dealing with nuisance wildlife with a friend of ours who's been on the podcast before John Henry Harrelson he also is the district biologist for district 4 uh, with the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission um, and so that's going to be his talk and then the third talk during session three is feral swine the biology the challenge and the solutions with Todd Walker from Jaeger Pro um, which they have a that's a trapping company they have uh, equipments to deal with nuisance feral hogs along with Phelan Owens from the Wildlife Commission. Um who's kind of like their feral swine. She's
0: expert. their um she's their representative for the North Carolina Feral Swine Task Force. Yeah. Similar to me here.
1: Yeah. And then the closing session, um that is there's three more talks during that. And you can choose from the Upland Bird Mystery with Terry Sharp, who we saw on Friday. And that's kind of talking about quail and other Upland birds, but basically management for quail um, and turkeys. Conservation costs is the second talk, Bridging the Conservation Gap to Enhance Wildlife Habitat. That's with John Eisenhower, Ken Knight, and James Tomberlin from the Wildlife Commission. Um, And that's about cost share programs, which is a a great discussion and something that many landowners should hear and and listen to and learn about how you you can manage your land and get paid. And third talk in the closing session is Wildlife Openings, Supplementing Your Property for Results with Cody Folk.
0: Yeah, it's a talk I've given before, given brief pieces of it on this podcast. So, yeah, that's, those are the lineups. So anybody can find something in each session that, that you may or may not be um, totally diehard about. But you're going to learn something. And I think you'll walk away at the end of the day with more information than you can probably absorb for the low, low cost of $25. Yeah. I can't imagine if you're able to get it off work, why you wouldn't come to this. If you're, if you have any amount of land, whether it's four acres or 400 acres that you're looking after to be a better steward of the land, this is something that you can come and and be a part of and, and hear it from the professionals for nothing. And it's catered lunch. Yeah. So free lunch is included with the, uh, price of admission. There's also going to be vendors there. Um, lots of different vendors and booths set up to be dealing out information. There's going to be giveaways. Uh, Jaeger Pro is bringing gear. They're doing a trap demo with their trap. I don't know if Pig Briggs bringing a trap or not, but they're definitely bringing stuff. Um, there's just going to be uh, all kinds of neat stuff for the outdoorsman. It's going to be like, if you've ever been to the Southern Farm Show, if you like farming, this is Do you the like su- farming? Yeah, I like farming. <laughs> but if you like uh, wildlife and habitat, which I like even more than farming, this is your Southern Farm Show. It's the Habitat Summit on October 8th. So without further ado, we have tirelessly worked to compile a teaser special from a few of the speakers at the Habitat Summit. You're going to hear from Dr. Grant Woods. You're going to hear from Jesse Wimmerly. You're going to hear from Allison Medford. Just a little taste of kind of three very different topics that are going to be going on at the Habitat Summit. Um, Listen to them. I know you'll enjoy it. And then consider signing up to come to the Habitat Summit. You can sign up on our website, www.3riverslandtrust.org. There's going to be a little thing up at the top you can click on about the Habitat Summit. Click on that and you can get your tickets there.
1: Sign, sign up, up now. They'll leave anything yeah. out. Mm-mm. No, the events on Friday, October eighth. So, um, yeah, I think we said. I that think in it's every time. single teaser as well. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's you'll time. know. You'll know what day it is. It's time to sign up now and and claim your spot. There's limited spots. Yeah, the there's room. limited spots. That's
0: that's important to know. So, if you're interested in this, and it's not just centric to North Carolina. I mean, you can come from wherever and 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 hear this, and and I think you'll glean something from it. Plenty anywhere yeah. in the southeast, in particular. So, yeah, sign up early, sign up often.
1: (laughs) This is our first time doing it, and I think that's also worth noting as well. It's something that we've talked about doing in in the past, and I feel like it lines up very nicely with kind of our core mission of being good stewards to the land, and um, this is just an opportunity for you to come out and learn from the pros about how to do it. Sure
0: thing. So, anyways, you'll hear from these guys next. All right, so everybody, we're going to be piecing together pieces of uh what we're calling teasers at the moment. I'm gonna try to come up with a more clever yeah. name than that for it. But uh we've actually got joining us Dr. Grant Woods of Growing Deer TV. He's joining us this morning and we're gonna be talking just a little bit about his uh his appearance and his talks that he's gonna be giving at our Habitat Summit in October on the 8th. So you've heard us talk a little bit about that in the past and on a couple of episodes and we'll be talking about it more as we get closer to time but dr grant woods is with us today uh remotely uh thanks for joining us grant uh we appreciate you taking the time to uh chat with us a little bit about deer and and uh habitat and everything else
2: now thanks guys i appreciate the opportunity where are you
1: calling in from grant
2: I'm just north of Branson, Missouri. A lot of people travel to Branson, and so some people will recognize that. We're having a great summer, man. I'm looking out my window right now, and it's green. We're usually not, you know, really just brilliant green this time of year, but we've been catching some timely rains and the food plots, and the are good.
0: Well, it sounds like your, uh, your growing season is going better than ours. Currently, we're in a hurricane uh, here, <laughs> and uh, – it's actually slacked up for the minute. There's, It doesn't even look like it's raining right now, but it was raining pretty good. But that's the first – this is the first significant rainfall we've had in two months. Um, mm. We have not had – we were super wet early in the year uh, from, gosh, from the end of March through through mid-April. And then it stopped. And yeah. to the point where we were too saturated to even plant, and then it stopped, and it hasn't rained since. And, I mean – not a drop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Creek in front of my house is oh, those are
2: going dry. Oh, goodness. Those are top cycles. And, you know, one thing I'm going to share at the summit is uh, what some people call it a virginity bag. For for wildlifers, we call it the release process or kind of releasing the land potentials. When you manage the land appropriately and you follow some real simple, these are not mine, but real simple soil health principles. And I I, myself, and others have just learned these from watching natural ecosystems. When I say natural, and there are not many left. I'm not sure we really know what healthy soil looks like, but, you know, Yellowstone, places like that. I used to work out there a little bit as a naturalist. Um, you understand that, gosh, you know, and... Out there in the, in the quote unquote real world, there's never a monoculture. There's always a variety of, of things growing. Like here at my place, we have a lot of native vegetation work. Matter of fact, I have a, a PhD graduate student coming in next week to do some clippings for their work and, you know, looking at protein levels and all these different things, deer use and whatnot. But, uh, there's always a, a mix. And here at my place, we've, we've been, you know, using prescribed fire and, timber stand improvement for many many years and we've identified 170 plus different species of native grasses and forbs and and i've noticed that even in a the drought they, they look pretty doggone good my food box be kind of wilted over and there's some of this native stuff's looking really good so that's where we're kind of learning our lessons from is how do they do that and how are they coping with the drought so well
0: yeah we noticed the same thing here on a lot of the acreage that we manage is. Uh, a lot of times, our our native stuff really has a more hardy approach to extreme weather, and uh, it, it always looks a lot a lot nicer than than stuff that you know we've come in and, and planted supplementally or or what have you. So yeah, we we see the same. I actually just finished reading. I'm assuming the pictures online on the Growing Deer TV website. I'm assuming those pictures of the native habitat that may be the spot you're referring to there um, with the 176. Uh, odd species. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: That's, that's here at my place where I live. Yeah, we uh, those, those areas were covered with eastern red cedar, and, and here in this part of Missouri, it was kind of starting to get settled pretty good. About 1830, 1850 trappers and those folks were, you know, were really settling down a little bit here. So we're much newer. My wife's a a Southern belle. She's from North Carolina, and I, and I of course, schooled at Georgia and Clemson. So I've been over in that world a good bit, but usual a little different world and so when when the european settlers or just candidly the white settlers were coming through there were these big balds, and actually some of the vigilantes here in the area were called bald knobbers and that just meant they weren't bald like me but they met on these south-facing slopes which were native grasses and forbs primarily not many trees so the locals called them balds because there weren't many trees there and and there was that's where the buffalo and the elk and you know critters like that herbivores fed because there was just wonderful vegetation and then basically when the settlers got here they said well we're going to put our cows here and they fenced those areas off put cows on there which is rightfully so but they never moved the cows or anything so the cows ate the best and left the rest and cedar seeds would you know be deposited by birds flying over and all of a sudden our cedars would take over those areas and so when trace and i my wife tracy purchased this ranch it was choke full of cedars, literally. We have failed, I don't know, tens and tens of thousands. I, I mean that literally. And and then we just <laughs> fell them, leave them the place. There was no market, literally. And then let them dry for two years and put prescribed fire in there. think, well, you know, if few grasses grow or something. And, and what's developed is a rainforest rich development. Released.
0: That's right. You uh, did you save any cedar posts? To do any uh, shed construction?
2: <laughs> you know, I've got a few posts, a few old barns on there held up with some big cedar logs, and some of my buddies have taken a few. But a lot of cedars weren't really high quality because they'd grown so thick and tight. It'd be, you know, be like having a thousand pine trees per acre or something. <laughs> yeah. It gets pretty wow. thick in there. They're, yep. they're all kind of starving for sunlight.
0: That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, matter of fact, my personal place is an old. Uh, Cow was a cow pasture at one time mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's got quite a bit i've got a pretty good supply of cedar but i've slowly been wiping them out and building everything uh, yeah, everything on our place <laughs> out of them <laughs> so so yeah i'm uh i'm in the cedar takeout mode myself
1: when it yeah. comes when no, it,
2: to... go ahead
1: grant go ahead. excuse me
2: no, uh, please. You know, I started my career in college or thing kind of looking almost like an iceberg. Boy, you learn to identify a plant or a few plants or trees, and you're all looking above the ground. And later part of my career, I've been just as interested, if not more, about what's going on below the soil. And one reason native vegetation does so doggone good, you know, for years we thought, boy, it's that species. Boy, that species of Desmodium, you might know that as beggars lives or those little triangle seeds that get on your pants from your quail hunting or something. Uh, you think, man, those things are so drought-hardy and high in protein and deer love them and quail love the seed. How do they do that, you know? And you just want to plant a whole field of them. And then when you do, they don't do that well. Mm-hmm. So what we've learned is, again, below the soil or the bottom part of the iceberg, which is always bigger than the top part, all different plants release really mild carbonic acid, or really mild acid out of the root system, but different ones release different acids. So that can break down that parent material, the rock or of course the soils whatever, into usable nutrients. And if you have a single species, soybeans, you know, whatever, there's value there for sure, but it's not as valuable as a blend. I'm I'm talking, you know, for wildlife here. I understand we gotta eat and feed a bunch of people on the planet, but you know, you're you own a little bit of land like me and you wanna see a deer and a turkey out there, it's a whole different story. And in those blends, like my food plots always blends. I never plant a monoculture in a food plot. And we've found, that's what I'm talking about, replicating nature, that if we get the blends right, like here at my farm, now I'm in the Ozarks, very poor soil, heavily eroded, very poor soil, I haven't used any fertilizer in eight years. No lime, no fertilizer, no insecticide, no fungicide, none of that. And it's just been amazing to watch how the soil has recovered and healed itself.
1: Yeah, it's a cool story. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to hear you talk, cause you know you you have, like you said, people focus on the tip of the iceberg, and that's what you hear people talk about a lot. And um, it's it's when I saw Travis kind of gave us the breakdown of everybody's talks, I was very excited to see yours and your talk on soil health, because uh, it's something that I just feel like is uh, a missing piece in my in my knowledge bank in terms of something that's new to me and i'm glad to know that somebody like yourself who's kind of a big name is focusing on something that's um cutting edge i suppose
2: you know i think a lot of people misinterpret soil health as more fertilizer or something like that but i think if we uh, really look at it, i mean the soil is really the basis for our air quality right you know because Plants, trees, whatever is impacting our air quality, all come out of the soil. And our water quality is totally soil dependent. Our food production, whether it's from a farmer's field or growing a healthy deer for our family to consume, it all comes from the soil. And I, I wish I had got on this early in my career. And there's no money to be made talking about different techniques to use in soil. There's no product, right? I can well this shovel will make you grow a bigger deer. There's nothing out there that's got you know. It's just information that I've learned. And, other people have learned and shared with me, and I'm so excited about it. Goodness gracious, because the what I've seen happen, not only at my place, I've been sharing this with other people. I mean, I work in you know in the South on highly, highly eroded Piedmont red clay soils. And you, you guys probably know this, but you know I, I schooled, of course, at Thompson, and, and the average for the state of South Carolina is they lost 17 inches of topsoil to Black Horizon. We're left with the B horizon. The black horizon is somewhere out in the Atlantic Ocean. It's gone, literally, literally gone. And and when we look, one thing I like doing, in fact, I just bought another one this week, but I like getting the books of the first explorers. I'm not talking Daniel Boone, although his, by the way, folks, his autobiography, which you can listen to if you don't like to read on YouTube, just Google Daniel Boone's biography on YouTube. It's fascinating, his observations of what he saw and how far the trees were apart, and all the different species, and everything gives us a glimmer of what we can experience again. Even with people, more people, and all this stuff. And when I read these early explorers, like I, I'm sorry, I get so excited about stuff, but like here in Missouri, this one explorer, he's a botanist, kind of going through, and he was trying to decide whether this place was worked going the war over for his king in England during the Louisiana Purchase. You know, it's a real important decisions coming here, and one. You know, we all hear about ticks today, and boy, they're bad and all the ticks. And one of his things was so cool. He talked about riding across these fire scars that were set, well, he called it five horseback rides. And everyone figures a horseback ride back in that time was about 15 miles a day. You know, he started and you probably maybe broke for a little lunch or go potty or whatever and then rode again. And by the way, that's why most counties here in the Midwest are set up about 30 miles across because it's figured 15 miles is a a man horseback ride a day or a person horseback ride a day, and they wanted everyone in the county to be able to get to the county seat in one day. Mm -hmm. There's just fascinating stuff. Well, he rode across fire scars that were five horseback rides or 75 miles. Well, fire is the best way to control ticks because not the actual fire. Ticks sense it coming, going to the ground or whatever. But when they come out, ticks die just easily by desiccation they have to have moisture on their skin if they get desiccated they, they're terminated well you turn an area black and it's hot for two or three days those ticks are gone now when we burn 10 acres like a lot of people do now and they go ah I don't really see much different ticks of course you don't because you burn 10 acres and and it you know three weeks later it rains it turns green it's the best food in the neighborhood and all the deer and rabbits everybody's in there eating and ticks are shed off them and we populate in the area
1: yeah, why a, did the explorers?
2: True. I'm sorry. Why yeah. did the explorers never talk about ticks? Because there was this massive, massive tick control called Fire, and it was big enough that critters didn't get into the center of it for quite some time, and it just stayed tick free. Uh,
0: yeah, we actually had uh, we had Wake Forest come out and do. We were doing a tick study on one of our properties last year, and the mm-hmm. uh, the grad students were pretty disappointed at the uh, at the recoveries of. Their tick drags, they were not finding ticks, <laughs> and uh, it was because we burned so often and and so much acreage mm-hmm. out there, and and they were uh, they were really frustrated with uh, the amount of ticks they were finding, and so we were having to uh, supplement in other ways. So yeah, it's yeah, it was the
1: only three people in the state of North Carolina disappointed that we <laughs> that we weren't producing more ticks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're speaking our language with the Boone talk. We Cody's son. Cody named his son Boone after Daniel Boone. Oh yeah, And yeah. not only that, but we um, just protected a property in Davie County that was is rumored to be and believed to be by many um, Daniel Boone's home place here in North Carolina oh, wow. when he lived here. So we uh, we just protected that farm, and there's a lot of historical record going back and saying that this is the location where Boone lived, and it's the longest, the place that he lived longest for the longest span of time. Uh, b- or believed to be in this entire lifetime. 14
0: to 17 years old. His parents are buried um, in Moxville, which is about 15 minutes north of here, um mm-hmm. Squire Boone. Um so yeah, Daniel Boone's actual parents are buried um, in the town of Moxville. So yeah, we've got some some deep connections to Boone too. We try to claim him over Kentucky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, we try Well, to- you know,
2: we claim him too because he's buried here in Missouri right, and that's you right. know been his last little bit Missouri, and, and I live in Taney County, and the county south of me is Boone County.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so a lot of people try to claim in those old things. You yeah, know, let's just right. be thankful he made a big, pack and a big impact over a large area. That's right. That's right.
1: I've, got, I've heard tale of something, and I want to ask you about it, because I want to hear it from mm-hmm. the horse's mouth. There's a gentleman, my my dad. You're gonna have to think. So yeah, this is, no, hold
0: on. Let me preface it. You're please, gonna have to you're gonna have to think way early in your career. Grant. This is probably oh you. this is probably you coming
1: out of Clemson. Um, there's a gentleman, along with my father and and a friend of mine, Rick Phillips, that uh, have been leasing a place in Union County, South Carolina, called Falcon mm-hmm. Farm, owned mm-hmm. by Norris Fowler, and. There's a gentleman named Kendall Alley who's part of that club as well, and I happen. <laughs> okay, that's Ring, all. I... All right. like ringing bells here. All right, I'm starting to. I'm, st- I'm. I'm. thinking I'm hitting hitting the right note here. And he told me that you had been out to Falcon Farm and had designed some food plots and laid them out. And it happened to be one of those food plots is where I shot the first deer of my life. Is that is that ringing a bell?
2: Yeah, he, it is, and Kendall's a great guy. Some people don't know he was on a national championship Clemson football team.
1: He sure was, and
2: and one of his good buddies is Rob Freeman, and Rob, Rob, Kendall, and I are still friends, and Rob and I are, are close friends. And yeah, I've, I've been all over that farm, and yeah, it's a yeah, you know, great area. I go back, and 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 still, Rob actually owns another little smaller farm close by there. And I was just over there, I guess it was last year working on Rob's farm.
1: Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Rob Freeman is uh, a f- friend of mine and his son, Jamie and I went to school together. So sure. yeah, oh, okay, yep, sure enough. Yeah. Well, that's, was a small world, man. I just, I'd heard Kendall say that. And when he, he brought your name up organically and I was like, no, no kidding. Well, Grant's going to come and talk at our habitat summit. This is only, you know, a few months ago. And, um, but I wanted to hear that out of your mouth, so I didn't. That wasn't spinning my wheels or anything.
2: <laughs> Man, great, great guys. One time, you know, when you we were young and dumb, Kendall, Rob, and I went on a duck hunt in Arkansas that somehow morphed into a deer hunt. We had tags and whatnot. And Rob was. It was cold, way colder than we thought. And Rob crawled up this ridge, literally, and he can ask him about this little sunny spot to get some sun. And I think he was sleeping. He said he was just resting, <laughs> but
1: probably was sleeping.
2: Woke up and took his duck shotgun and shot about a hundred and fifty inch buck that happened to be in front of him when he looked up. Literally. Literally. <laughs> wow.
0: That's a good nap, right there. That is a great nap. That's a
2: good nap. That's a good nap there, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, soil, man, it just makes me so excited. Soil and you know, we can all play a part, whether it's in your garden or whatever it is, there's just so much good we can do here and you know, and it impacts water quality, and we all live downstream. You know, we're all kind of we're all influenced by someone else's actions.
0: Yeah, totally. That I mean, that's that's our entire mission is uh, trying to protect those areas and conserve areas for for water quality and for the future. And without sure. without without the base, which would be soil, you've got a you've got a major issue. Um, and that and that's what your that's what your talk at the habitat summit is gonna gonna center around uh from from what i've what i've read it, it
2: is we're gonna, we're gonna discuss just the really simple four simple principles of soil health and kind of dive into those a little bit what's that really mean how some easy ways to apply them to your application and uh, you know just want to get that that mindset started of boy it's you know I, and i love food plots uh, you know i love food plots uh, i have a bunch of food plots love everything about them but uh Boy, without good soil, those food plots you know you just have to put a whole lot of synthetic chemicals down there to to make those food plots grow or be somewhat productive and there's a there's an an inexpensive way to do that that's actually more productive and more healthy for not just the critter eating an individual plant but that whole environment again water air everything
1: just as a teaser as we're you know we we want to be respectful of your time, but these four steps um you know, I think part of this, this habitat summit is speaking directly to landowners and people, you may have people there with a lot of resources and equipment, and then people there who maybe not have the equipment that uh, they'd like or are able to have. Mm -hmm. Um, Are these four principles, things that anybody can do on their property? Or is there kind of a, you know, kind of a no, uh, I, you know,
2: I, I, I you know, I have food plots here that are back in the heels. I'm in hills up mountains that you you know, you walk in with your backpack and saw hand tools, and and I'm blessed to have a tractor and a no till drill too, and you know, so yeah, I, I I have to use all these techniques myself. All
1: right, well, that's great to know. You know the.
2: Yeah, we, we want all the landowners My, You know, I, I, when we moved here, Ozark's really rocky, and this wasn't because I think thinking soil health. It's because I was too lazy to try to till in all these rocks. So I told my wife, we're going to do a no-till garden. I'd take a screwdriver and kind of wiggle a hole down between the rocks and put a seed down there. <laughs> and and that I say that, and I mean, that's absolutely true, but then I started noticing, well, that gosh, that's just growing a whole lot better than where I tried to till over here. And soil, I think we think of soil, my, and I was taught this in college, boy, you know, it takes a thousand years to build an inch of soil. And that's true if you're just letting weathering of rock happen. Here at my farm, in a short time, less than 20 years, we've built about six inches of black organic soil on top of the rocks. I mean, the success of this system, again, I, and I talk about it so openly because it's not where you got to plant this blend of seed or you got to. Boy, you have to use this brand to track. There's nothing like that. It's just these simple techniques that were what nature used to build the great prairie or some of the greatest soils on the planet. You know, the buffalo went through and pretty much trampled everything down. That made that mulch layer, made sure there was armor on the soil, and there was a diversity of plants growing. And it grew as many days out of here as it could. Now it's 40 below in Kansas. There's nothing growing out there, right? But many days as it could. And you just apply these simple principles wherever you are, and it's it's just so fun to watch your soil improve.
1: Well, we're excited to hear about yeah,
0: it. I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh you know, we use a lot of tools here and and in and, and our role as managers and things we recommend and soil disturbance is one of them that we that we use. Um mm-hmm. especially in heavily heavily tilled areas or agriculture areas that were historically agriculture. And now they've got a lot of introduced weeds and things. We'll, we'll do a lot of soil disturbance to uh, get those things Mm -hmm. coming up and then, and then take care of them with herbicide. But you know, having a, there's something to be said about a thatch layer and, and I'm super interested in this topic. And I think it's going to be probably a little bit far out there for some of the, some of the local folks that come to this thing. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be new to people. Yeah. So, so I think, I think it'll be something that folks can really get something from and maybe even cost them less to do their plantings or their, or their wildlife management and their habitat management, because, you know, there's less passes on a tractor in many
2: cases. Absolutely. You know, the the commercial farmers that use these techniques, there's about 5% of the hundred plus million acres of row crop ag in America that are doing this. They're the most profitable. I mean, they're, they're, it's just, uh, you, you, you sit back and go, how come everyone's not doing this? For example, some of them, you know, reports go out this year had about $1.17 in corn. That's stem to stern. I mean, from planting to drying down to marketing to harvest and everything, the average nationwide is over $5. Right. That's the kind of difference we're talking about. It's, it's incredible.
0: Yeah, And I think, I think if, if someone it doesn't care about the term soil health or anything else, I think they'll care about their bottom dollar. Yeah, and uh, yes, sir. And this yes, will sir. this will help with that. And that's that's what we want to do. We want to encourage landowners to do these things and and find an economical way to do it. Yeah, and right. and guys like you are the are the reason we're able to put this thing on and and give out the knowledge that we want to give out. So uh, no, I appreciate the opportunity. We're yeah, super I'm super excited. Tell I'm, tell folks how to how to find you uh, and maybe research you a little bit more.
2: Obviously, Sam and I we
0: yeah. we know, but. Tell people yeah, how if to you how wanna,
2: look at it. Yeah, you want to learn about us? It. Not on any of the you know streaming platforms. Uh, just search on growing Deer. I think we're on you know Apple and Amazon, of course, YouTube. There's GrowingDeer.com. We're on the website. There's seven or eight of them out there. Roku and the Facebook page is just Grant Woods. And pretty much Google Grant Woods or Growing Deer, you'll find us. Look forward to sharing more information.
1: Well, that sounds great thank you so much for coming on i hope we didn't take too much of your time and this is a it's just this is a great opportunity for people who are interested in coming and hearing from you first and i don't think we gave too much away either so that's kind of the the whole goal
2: and i'm just coming for that north carolina barbecue that's no, right we're gonna have it for
0: sure we're <laughs> uh, we're looking forward to meeting you in person and and chatting about deer and and everything that we all like to do um we're looking forward to it. So, thank you for yeah. thank you for joining us. I hope you have a great rest of the day, and uh, we will uh, we'll be talking soon.
1: Thanks, guys. All right, Grant.
0: So, like we said, we're joined by lots of guests. We're compiling these little teasers to get everybody fired up. Mm-hmm. So, I say that pun intended. We're joined by Jesse Wimberly of West Bend, North Carolina. Jesse Wimberley is uh, the creator and collaborator of the Prescribed Burn Association for the Sandhills, but it's actually, the, as far as I know, Jesse, it's the only prescribed burn association in the state of North Carolina. Is that right?
3: It was originally. Uh, it was the first one that anyone had ever attempted, but as we speak, there are three other PBAs in formation besides the Sandhills, all kind of based on the same principle of if you want to get some burning done, you need your neighbor to help you out. So that's basically what we are, is neighbor helping neighbor.
0: That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a thing in the South for a little while now. Um, the, the southern states have been really good. I, I always like to tout southern states because everybody's always dogging us. But the southern states are really good about prescribed fire. We, we kind of jumped on it quick in the science of prescribed fire because we recognize the need for it because of our habitat types. Um, which is what Jesse is kind of a specialist in, is uh, the habitat type that really dominates Jesse's region is the longleaf pine habitat, the longleaf pine savannas, and uh, they require fire. And so Jesse has done a great job of of getting these neighbors in touch with one another and starting this prescribed burn association. But Jesse's a lot more than that. He's a, a longleaf, I don't even know how to put it, a longleaf. Jesse, what would you call yourself, longleaf? I want to say Longleaf Advocate, but I feel like it's more than that.
3: Well, I was going to use a word like freak, but <laughs> let's don't, say, let's don't call me a freak right off the bat. But I am one of the, I'm fourth generation. My family has been involved with Longleaf since right after the Civil War. And it's been who we are, It's been part of our economy and part of our culture. And that's kind of what the PDA is. We, we trying to bring people together to say, how can we work together to restore one of the most uh, wonderful ecosystem that was ever put together here in uh, North America, and that's the Longleaf Pine ecosystem. Originally a 90 million acre landscape, got down to about two, we're back up to about five now, and it's just uh, a full court press to see if we can't put some of this back, and as you mentioned, the beauty of this is going back to the past, uh, because all of us used to use fire. Fire is probably been first management, forest management tool that people ever use. We've been using fire on the land since uh, native people first, you know, saw lightning hit a tree and went over and picked some of it up. Fire is just part of who we are, and particularly here in the South, we know about fire. We have the highest occurrence of lightning strikes anywhere in the world, and that's how that fire got on the ground originally. So we're just trying to put back something that was, you know, about as old as time itself.
0: Man, that's a, that's a great way to put it. So Jesse is going to be talking at our habitat summit and he's going to be talking uh um, on a panel about prescribed fire and and a lot of different ecosystems where prescribed fire fits in and longleaf's one of those, but yeah, it's uh it's important to recognize the history of prescribed fire and and where it comes from. It's not something that scientists came up with or or Jesse and I sat around and talked about and we were like, "Hey, this sounds like a good idea." People been doing this for thousands of years.
1: Yeah, I got a question, Jesse. Um, this is Sam. I regarding the PBA, you said it's neighbors helping neighbors beyond just like coordinating and coming up with. The, I mean, are you coming up with a region wide or a community wide management plan? Is there like financial help where y'all are helping each other out uh, with monies, or what ways do your neighbors help each other out through the B, uh, the PBA?
3: Yeah, and I really want, uh, hopefully we'll have enough time to kind of unpack that at our, at our meeting there. But there are a lot of benefits uh, to our community, to our culture, and to our system. Because it doesn't matter whether you're managing for, uh, you know, habitat or for, you know, production. Yeah, sure. Fire is one of those tools that you can use, and you can use it at home. You know, it's like a IKEA little project. You know, it, anyone can do it. But the more you know about it, the better. It's not something that only professionals can do, but you need to know what you're doing. Like, you know, I always tell people, my family used to burn 200 acres every year with a lighter knot. And for your listeners who might not know what a lighter knot is, we'll go into that. Very important tool back in the day, but we've gotten a little more sophisticated, and we have brought a little more science into it because we don't have the open spaces that we had 100 years ago. So when you're burning around, you know, urban areas, we do have to pay attention to uh, the smoke. And the good news is the science is there. We don't have any problem with knowing how to use fire. It's just that we don't, and before the PBA, we didn't have a process to engage those folks. Like we said earlier, you can't burn by yourself. You need to have some folks. So what the PBA does is kind of acts like a container to put all the interest together. And so we'll send out a message that Joe or Sue wants to burn on Thursday, and anyone who wants to come and get a drip torch in their hand and learn how to do it can do that. Before the PBA, uh, you know, you could become, uh, you could try to become a certified burner in the state, but you didn't really have a process to help you. So that's what the PBA does. Helps you get the skills and also the wherewithal to put fire back on your uh, timber stand.
1: And that's great. Yeah, I think it's a
0: wonderful a wonderful thing in, in a place such as the Sand Hills where fire is a predominant part of life. It helps uh not only the landowners that are able to accomplish it through their, their own, you know, system and internally, it helps them be able to get it on their landscape, but it also just promotes the whole idea of fire and, and keeps it a community wide thing. And I think it's it's super important and uh in places where fire is needed and necessary it's absolutely something
1: that uh somebody like Jesse needs to be doing and i think I, the pr the pr of fire in the sand hills is like very good yo we, it's
0: a great place to go be a burner yeah, like we love uh-huh. we love it when we have a prescribed burn in moore county
1: <laughs> yeah we had one this year uh Jesse where we were in, on like the moore richmond county line and all the neighbors and people driving by everybody was like oh, great what y'all are doing. Thank y'all for being out here. This looks great and all that stuff, whereas other places that we burn. We burn
4: in
0: Rowan (laughs) County. It's like, what's happening? Why are y'all doing this? We're calling the fire department.
2: (laughs) Uh
3: And let me jump in right there, fellas. That's a good segue for me to jump in. The second role of the PBA is to reintroduce fire culture. My mom, who just passed away a few years ago at 96, talked about fire the same way you would talk about growing cabbage. It's just what everyone did. It was just a common, common thing everyone knew about fire. But along comes Smokey the Bear, and it was just a misguided federal policy that we've seen a few of them before, but this one really <laughs> did set us up with a problem, and it got us upside down with fire, because fire's not a problem unless it's, you know, too close to a house. Fire is actually the answer to all wildfires. Now finally the federal government has decided Wait a minute, we can't keep putting these fires out we got to start using Fire to take away those fuels So now there's this massive national debate Going on in this country How are we going to get more fire on the landscape And the good news is The South is going to lead that discussion Because as y'all pointed out We know how to put fire on the landscape So that's what we want to talk about At the, at the meeting Is how anybody can be a practitioner Of fire with the right uh, information, the right tools, anyone can do it, and that 's what we want to do is share the flame with everybody
0: I like that I like that share, share the, the flame. flame, yeah, fuel the flame and share the flame and, and that's exactly what the habitat summit's all about it's about you know introducing folks to ideas and and techniques that they may have heard of but they they haven't really ever done or they've done it, and they would like to know more about it or just a way to get started on this on your management of your of your, of your land. Um, because North Carolina is comprised of, you know, 98% private land. So without management on private land, we've got a, we've got a big problem.
1: Yeah. I can see how fire along with really any other management for somebody who doesn't have experience in it. It's an intimidating thing along with running heavy equipment for managing your property, whatever it may be. But I really like your attitude, Jesse, where it's, you know, you're saying anybody can do it with the right skill set, and it's not something to be scared of. It's something to celebrate. And I think that's a really good way to get people interested um, and kind of get that hesitation or fear out of their mind. Um, so, I, you know, you're a great spokesperson for it.
0: Yeah. Have you noticed, Jesse, that people uh, tend to look at folks that are, are practitioners of fire and think, oh, well, he's a he's a firebug or he's a pyro type fella and and some of us could be probably categorized as that but you know at the end of the day it really does produce a really nice result when it's when it's practiced properly and uh
3: absolutely and there's some great studies coming out y'all now that shows uh you know the old saying we've all heard it you fight fire with fire and it really is some wisdom to that because what we're seeing is areas that are regularly burned are not Susceptible to wildfire when it comes through so you know even when we get into uh, discussions like climate change we know that wildfires are a major contributor to that and prescribed fire reduces a lot less co2 so no matter which angle you look at this thing from habitat to production to climate change there are benefits from prescribed fire so that's what we're trying to get everybody to understand is that fire is one of those things that's counterintuitive. It looks destructive, but it, it replenishes the landscape. It enhances the landscape. So that's what we hope to uh, take a deep dive into at the, at the conference.
1: Yeah, I don't want to give too much away, uh, and you've done a good job of just kind of setting the table but not bringing the main course out yet, which we will bring out on October 8th at the Charles Mack Center. Um, uh-huh. However, I do have a fun question. Uh, okay. Cody and I In the past year both bought cabins And I went out on a I went out on a monitoring trip Jesse's a cabin yeah, guy that's, too. Why, that's why I'm asking mm-hmm. I went out on a monitoring trip with Val um, And she was like You know Jesse owns a cabin And she was telling me a little bit about your place um, I want to hear from, You're a real deal cabin man Tell everybody a little bit about Your cabin and your lifestyle Because I think it's awesome
3: Well, it really is that part of that uh, fire story because my ancestors, I'm I'm speaking to you right now from my cabin uh, that was built right after the Civil War in 1870, and it's made out of fat lighter. My entire cabin is made out of fat lighter. It's sitting (laughs) on pieces of wood that have been there since the Civil War, and there's no termite damage. So, you know, living in a cabin and trying to reclaim some of those traditional ways of uh, working on the land, I'm seeing a huge interest in that. A lot of folks want to reclaim some traditional ways of of doing forestry. And moving it from something that only professionals do to what we as landowners can do, I think is the greatest gift that Three Rivers is working on. How to bring uh, landowners together to look at all the different values of our land. And let me tell you, my family were turpentiners. And then we went into free-range cattle, and that was before you had to pay extra for free-range. All cattle was free-range. And then we went into tobacco, and now I'm growing water. And I have an easement with the Three Rivers Land Trust where I supply the water supply for all of Southern Moore County, all the nice restaurants. The water you get in those come off my land. And by using fire, we're now realizing that if fire can help with water retention, when we uh, take out a lot of the scrub layer that's accumulated from fire suppression, we actually get better water retention in our streams. So there are just a whole wonderful suite uh, of value to using fire. But let me tell you, the one I like the best is sitting in my cabin and looking out and seeing a good blackened area coming out from my cabin and know that I am safe with this thing that my great-grandfather built. You know, 150 years ago it can give you a real safe feeling in that cabin when it's made of fat lighter that you got a <laughs> good black and red area in and reduce fuel so we're really we're really starting to see there's so many values to using fire but one of them is a lot of it protecting our homes and when you live in one that's made out of wood like I do fire is a good friend
0: that's Jesse. you hit on a lot of a lot of things that I, I was hoping I was hoping we're, we would talk about and you know that's a hard gap to bridge between fire and water and water retention there, but removing that scrub layer and, and, uh, keeping the the undergrowth back through, through prescribed fire really does help with, with water quality and water retention. And it's a, it's an excellent topic that rarely gets hit on even by, even by, you know, scientists and practitioners, we rarely talk about that. So that, that's a great point. And I think it probably piqued some interest with folks and I hope it did because it's something that that they'll hear more of. But yeah, the the thing about firescaping and being fire wise, you know, guys living in log log homes, and you don't have to have a log cabin to to need to fire a little bit. Um, it's uh there's a there's a definite feeling of concern if you haven't ever been around wildfire. And we're really fortunate here in North Carolina; we don't have a lot of wildfires happen. We had some. What back in 2015, I forget whenever I went on those wildfires in Lake Lure, but you know those million dollar homes up there were uh they were in danger big time danger because they had fuel loads coming right up to the front porch, so we were we were putting in hand line around the house and and burning out away from those houses just to keep the fires back so yeah it's a it's a definite problem and out west folks experience it every year just because they they don't have prescribed fire out there.
1: yep that's right well jesse you still there i am i'm I, here i got one more question for you what okay. is what are the pros i'm i'm still on this cabin thing because i just you know a 150 year old cabin to, living to give you
0: some backstory jesse sam's been working on he's been remodeling his cabin for about a year and a half now so
1: yeah so what are the what are the amenities what are the pros and cons I, there, i'm sure there's not many cons to ha- living in a 150 year old cabin, what's, what's life like?
3: Uh, well, I'll tell you the one con is when you have children and your child says, Listen, did it ever occur to you that I may not want to live like a freak like you in a cabin out in the woods? <laughs> 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 the only con that I have had with this is my own children saying, Listen, I know this is fit for you, but I'm not sure that I want to live like this. All my other friends, you know, live in regular houses and you live in a cabin. So how how old are they, Jesse? Uh, my kid, well, they're grown now. They're in their 20s. But Do, they appreciate,
1: <laughs> do they appreciate it now?
3: Oh, of course they do. Uh-huh. Of, course. of course they do. Love, of,
1: yeah.
3: Oh, they love it, and they bring their friends over. Now, this is the truth, y'all. Back when I was in high school, back in the 70s, and my family was burning then. We, like I said, I'm fourth generation. We never stopped burning. The federal government sent down some folks called the Dixie Crusaders, in the early teens, to try to get Southerners to stop using fire. The U.S. Forest Service had decided that fire was the problem with forestry, not the answer. And so they sent down teams of folks to try to educate us Southerners why not use fire. And I tell people, we're so country, we're out in the woods and didn't get to go to the meeting. We didn't hear that you weren't supposed to use fire. So literally, we kept using it, and I'd invite kids over in high school to help burn. And they said, man, your family's weird." You're the only folks we know who set the woods on fire. But as you guys reported today, you can uh, talk about fire almost in any community down here in Southern Moore County, even a golf community with folks from up north, and they now understand the role of fire. Yeah. So that, that's that two-pronged thing that we're going to hopefully go take a little bit deeper dive into, is how do we get our, cult, our communities ready to receive our landowners when they start using fire? They want you want them to land in a good environment. You don't want to get a pushback on it because it's very hard for the landowner to decide to start using fire. And our community needs to be supportive of that. So that's the other thing we try to do is do a lot of education. That's why we're so excited being part of this conference is to educate our our population as to why fire is such a good tool.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's if you if you're from North Carolina and you've not visited the Moore County area, if you ever drive through there, you'll under, you'll see what we're talking about. You'll you'll be driving down the road and you'll see plowed fire breaks around longleaf pine and wiregrass habitat. You'll see smoke because chances are somebody's going to be burning one of those days, especially if it's, you know, especially if it's in the wintertime burning season. But Jesse was just talking before we got on the air. I mean, they've got burns planned. They've got growing season burns planned here in the next week or two. Um, so there's always some fire going on in that part of the world. And even, you know, we we've got a real big military presence here in North Carolina and, uh, the military uses fire a lot on the oh, base. Yeah. Um, a lot of their management through fire. It's, it's probably the most cost-effective method for maintaining large acreages of land that there is. And especially if you want to grow big trees and have good forestry practices, fires, fires, a great way to do that.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And let me tell you, this goes out to all the fellows. You know, sometimes we're a little bit stubborn, and I'm the same way. I love to go out and use a brush saw and get some clearing done. But the amount of work that you can accomplish in an hour with a match is so much uh, greater than you can accomplish with a chainsaw in a day. It's just amazing the, the amount of work that you can get done with properly applied fire is something that will be startling to anyone who's never used it when you see the effect on your landscape and the time saver that it is for you. It's amazing. And did I mention, I think y'all just uh, touched on it briefly, if I had to tell you what one of the great news stories about all this is, is there is funding for all this. If you're interested in using fire, there is funding for putting in fire breaks. There is funding for getting management plans. There's funding for getting fire on the landscape. So none of this should be any, uh, you know, you shouldn't be out of pocket very much if you want to start using fire. It is out there. People understand it, both on a, a local level, state and federal level, all understand and now fund uh, programs to help landowners use fire. So don't let the cost of it uh, be uh, prohibitive either.
1: Well, that's a great way to end it without giving too much away, Jesse. We want to be respectful of your time. Um if you want to come hear Jesse Wimberley and others speak, come to our Habitat Summit on October 8th at the Charles Mack Citizen Center in Mooresville, North Carolina. And if you want to do some – if this piqued your interest in fire and got you fired up, you can go to sandhillspba.org. Is that right, Jesse? That's correct. All uh, right, yeah, and go check it out and read a little bit about what they're doing and what Jesse has helped to create over there and the culture that they're trying to build. Um, anything else that you want to promote while we're here on air, Jesse?
3: That's just uh, all I want to say is the next time you see smoke, say thank you to someone who's using that smoke because that smoke might be the very smoke that prevents your house from burning up.
0: I couldn't agree more with that statement. That's we need we need to get T-shirts made up. Uh, <laughs> think of prescribed burner. I saw Jesse. I saw a T-shirt that you I think you had picked it up for Terry um it instead of saying uh, it, it was made up like the wildland firefighter shirts but it said wildland fire lighter was that was that a shirt that you had made or that you got somewhere
3: uh I mean, that's not ours but the one we do use, uh
0: our t-shirts we do have
3: t-shirts and what they say is harden our smoke
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: uh, yeah you know, the same way you walk in and your building's under construction and it's a little dusty that's the way I see our ecosystem We need to get in there and put a little smoke in there Put a little fire in it It's going to be a little dusty People are going to see it They're going to see the smoke But that's what you want to see You want to see a little good smoke
0: That's right Yeah, we could we could talk about this for, for days I, I love talking about fire um, I'm as fired up about fire as, as anyone And I know Jesse is too Jesse, thanks for coming And spending a little time with us this morning on the phone And And uh, I'm looking forward to the 8th I can't wait to hear your talk good. Looking forward to it, fellas All right, thanks. So we've got another teaser-upper coming to you. So we've done two. This will be the third one and probably the final one for Habitat Summit, at least for now. But Allison Medford, who is a wildlife biologist with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, who I've known for quite a while, and I'm extremely excited to have her here today actually in person and she's going to talk a little bit about some of the things we're going to be doing in her presentation at the Habitat Summit. A little background on Allison. She, she took the line of work in wildlife that I, looking back, wish I would have taken. The wildlife diversity aspect, I've focused more on game species and, and always have. But getting to work with her and, and do some of the things she does really makes me feel like I missed out on the adventure their job is way cool. I mean, just way cool. Sam's got to tag along on a on a couple of the the uh bat surveys that we've done and it's just it's a different different aspect and it's crazy to think you ever think, Allison, is it just weird that you're getting paid to do some of the stuff you do?
4: Oh yeah. Anytime I tell anybody what I do, they're like, That's a job? Yep. <laughs> like, That's my job. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: And also, Allison, her house is full of biologists. Her husband yeah. is actually the district biologist for the district where I live. So, um, Rupert's my kids there.
4: know all kinds of weird things yep. about critters. Yep, they'll
0: be the bring your parents to school day will be funny. <laughs> um, I'm sure and then they'll be bringing in skulls and and teeth yeah. and things uh-huh.
1: to show and tell. Yep. yep, just like my the other dad. kids. are Like my my dad's an accountant. My dad's a lawyer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yep, and all the kids will be like lame. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So the habitat nothing Summit. against
1: accountants. So it's just
0: <laughs> we've actually had some accountants on this yeah, show. Yeah, we sure before. have. But um, great advice there. But I think they would admit not as exciting. Yeah. But the reason Allison is giving this talk and the Habitat Summit, we're we're trying to cater to all types. You know, the the wide array of land management for a landowner and all the different things you can do, no matter what your interests lie for for wildlife. Because it's not just about deer. It's not just about you know gray squirrels. It's not just about bears. It's about the whole gamut of species that we have here in North Carolina. And so there's a lot of things that you can do that, that bilaterally benefit. But there's some things that are very specific to certain species. And Allison has, she's kind of on the, I would say, front edge of some new, new research with uh, avian species that are uh, predatory at night. So, owls. But, um, and her talk, we come up, we were trying to come up with names and I was like joking around with names. I was like, well, we should, we should go with the, uh, you know, steal it from Bob Seger and go with Night Moves. Uh-huh. You know, it's a great song, right? But um, we, we kind of settled on wildlife management after dark because it's going to be not only Allison, but also Olivia Munzer, another wildlife biologist with the Wildlife Resources Commission. They're going to be giving kind of a joint panel discussion on bats and owls. So they both fly after dark and uh they both have some some similarities and a lot of differences. But uh Allison, thank you for coming today.
4: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Your talk on on the Habitat Summit. Let's let's just dive right into the the importance of uh of barn owls and what the awareness issue is there.
4: Well, the awareness issue is probably nobody is aware unless you roll up to your deer stand and it's got some some stink to it, and right. what? Lots of piles of pellets and all kinds of stuff. Um, the issue with with barn owls is they're so secretive and they're so nocturnal that we can't know much about them from a typical avian survey. You know, mm-hmm. you're doing point counts and stuff. You're not going to find barn owls unless it's you're right up in their neighborhood yep. during nesting season when they're so active. Um, but typically, people find them when they when they discover them in their in their barns or in their their deer stands and they don't know what to do with them because they make a huge mess um and then then where do you go from there and it's um barn owls are listed as a species of of greatest conservation need in North Carolina which is not necessarily a designation of you know population numbers or anything uh-huh. like that it's just simply we don't know that much about them and though they are they have a a worldwide distribution we don't know that much about them and we especially don't know that much about them specifically in north carolina so so we're trying to to learn more have folks report when they have an active nest and and you know put up nest boxes and and hopefully you know in the next phase of the project ban them and and learn more about them but they're great to have around on people's farmland and that kind of thing they can they can really help out on minimizing those those rodent populations. Um, but they are weird birds <laughs> to have around. Yeah, them. we
0: were talking, you and I were talking uh, a couple months back mm-hmm. um, about them and the similarities between their nesting habits and a vulture's nesting habits. Yes. I think if I rolled up on a nest that did not have critters in it, I would probably lean towards vulture. Yeah. Just because I wouldn't know any better.
4: Yeah, they're, well... Vulture nests are, are weird <clears throat> too. I like these species, I promise. But I walked up on a vulture nest not too long ago, and I had a one baby vulture in it, and it was kind of rocking back and forth, and had that weird kind of purplish down. Da- mm-hmm. I still have nightmares about that. One. Close mm-hmm. my They're eyes. Not a very pretty. They're not baby animal. <laughs> They're like. not. Nor are barn owls.
1: I've got a. I've got a quick question. We're talking barn owls, B A R N. Yes, um, great. Oh, I love where this is <sighs> a good point. Good. Point. So, why barn owls instead of barred owls or great horned owls? What's the what's the significance of the barn owl? And then, how do you differentiate between like okay, there's a barn owl versus like what are the keys yeah. that you're looking for?
4: So, if I could make one contribution to science, it would be changing one of those species names. Yeah, sure. Barn or barred? That was rude of somebody. Um, so barn owls are typically agriculturally dependent species we think about that they um they hunt in those you know big open fields hay fields something like that and how they hunt they fly at night and they kind of hover over field they get rats and mice and that kind Mm. of thing barred owls are if you look at them i i think they are a, a more solid looking bird if you're just like directly comparing what those two birds look like next to each other. Um, a barn owl is a, a very delicate-looking, gracile kind of bird. Bard owls are chunkier, I think. And, of course, they have plumage differences, but that's kind of hard for folks to tell sometimes mm-hmm. if you're just, like, looking at something in a tree. Um, but barred owls are a, a much more generalist species. So if they if you've got, like, a dumpster in a creek, you can have barred owls. They're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, they're much more widespread, especially where people live. Um, to be honest, most of the calls and the reports that I get are, are barred owls. Um, they have a, a real wide range of vocalizations. They do that real typical, like, who cooks for you? Oh, I want to rip Rip it. Do it. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, can there you do it can
1: you do it so a barn owl b-a-r-n barn owl. Oh, I, no I hope you can't like a, it's like a shriek like a, yeah. if you it's hear a raspy,
4: terrifying demon scream and like it's two not, second yeah.
1: like two second long scream that you hear yeah, like it's, it's a, a it's a yeah.
4: real raspy hiss so when people hear tell me you know i get a call i've got i've definitely got barn owls they're they're hooting in my backyard i'm like well mm-hmm. yeah you got something yeah not barn owls um, but to throw a wrench in that, this time of year, juvenile barred owls begging call mm-hmm. <laughs> sounds like a barn owl yeah. if you don't know what you're listening for. So that that you know you have to get somebody helping you out yeah. and listening. And I, I have some a big compilation of recordings that I can send to folks and be like, okay, well listen to this one is because this is a juvenile. Barred owl, are you also hearing adults around? Do you hear that, like, congregational, like, monkey laugh sound Mm -hmm. that they do? So then we can kind of narrow it down, particularly by habitat, since they are so – barn owls are so habitat dependent. Monkey
1: laugh is a great way to
4: describe it. Yeah. (laughs) It's definitely –
0: when you're sitting in your deer stand, like, Mm pre-dawn hours, and one lights in a tree and then another one shows up, Yeah, they get going, it sounds like you're on the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they're –
4: People are like, well, I didn't know what I was hearing.
0: Yes. Yeah, no, it'll owls freak are weird. You out.
4: It'll freak you out. And and great horned owls, um, I think they probably have the most typical owl sound. Mm-hmm. The, just the Hollywood the owl.
0: owl. The, yeah, they have the Hollywood owl.
4: Yeah, they hoot. Yeah, and we have them around here. We definitely do, but they're not as thick on the ground as as mm-hmm. some others. We also have eastern screech owls, which are adorable little tiny things, yeah, and they kind of sure. sound like. Little teeny weeny horses, whinnying, um, up in the mountains. We have, uh, saw sawwets, but mm-hmm. we don't have those down here. Yeah,
0: used to ride the uh, used to ride the uh, surveys for the sawwet mm-hmm. owls. They're I was cool. In college, they're cool.
4: Yeah, um, great horned owls prey on barn owls and barred owls. I did not um, know that. Mm-hmm. Do they? Yeah. So there's a property where we have barn owls in Anson County, and we had an owl carcass and somebody was sending me pictures and they were like oh no maybe one of the barn owls got hit and i was like okay oh, it's just a you just, just a great you were, horned owl you That's were just hard.
0: you were just on that property we have an easement there mm. yeah
4: mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. it's a great great property
0: sam was excited when i told him about it and
1: he agreed he yeah. concurred after going there did
4: y'all see the nest boxes we've got up?
1: i did i saw one and i also that place is awesome yes. um great great horned owls uh, predate on turkeys as well, possibly. I've
4: heard that. Is that true? Not full grown turkeys. Not full grown turkeys. That would be impressive. Okay. Um I was about to
1: say, yeah, it would be very impressive. That's but a big deal. Chickens
4: bird. and mm-hmm. they had small things to medium sized okay. things. Um I've heard of them you might want to cut this part off. Heard of them <laughs> taking very small dogs. Uh huh. But no, I don't I think neither. that's typical. Yeah. Keep your dog um, in the house at night, <laughs> and your feral cat, coyotes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they they um they they tend to have up to a bigger prey size, great horned owls. They're, yeah, sure, they can be big. Yeah, looking mm-hmm. now, none of these weigh very much, right? You know, mm-hmm. when you think like it's a lot of these, fluff. yeah, these big mm-hmm. birds, they still don't weigh very much. Their bones are hollow, and all of those things. Um, like a big barn owl's five hundred and fifty grams, like. Like sixteen that's ounces. A big ones. Yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're they're little. Yeah. Um, and barn owls t- tend to stick with the small rodents. Yeah. Um, I've seen in into nests where they've got rats cached along the side of deer stands and things. Um, and that's the male provisioning the the female and the chicks. But yeah, they they tend to the smaller smaller rodents. Um,
1: it would seem that with cleaner farming and kind of agricultural practices that we have now that it would be conducive to the barn owl Mm -hmm. more open land and stuff Mm -hmm. and then you have these things that we talk about on the podcast like crp and stuff where you create more vertical cover and thicker cover that that would be kind of detrimental a little bit not that there's there's plenty of open farmland i'm sure for barn owls but yeah
4: so that's when you have to think about what are your goals and it's good to have a diversity of habitat types yeah um And realize that some of your habitat management comes at the expense of having some species around. Not that you're killing them actively or anything like Mm -hmm. that. But just if you let your early successional habitat grow up a little bit, you're not going to have some of the early successional species anymore. That's fine. Yeah, sure. Um, But you just have to be aware of your own management goals. Because maybe you don't want to keep everything in in hay fields all the time. Mm -hmm. Great for barn owls. Maybe not for other things that you're interested in. Yeah. That's fine. Um, but being aware of the specific habitat types where you are going to find these certain types of species. And maybe you do want to limit some of your work to keep barn owls in the area. Um, I won't go so far as to say necessarily encouraging barn owls to come to your property. Right. Um, I, w- I will warn, warn good, good of that. Disclaimer. Um mm-hmm. Because we have never had barn owls come to an area that they haven't already been if that makes sense obviously young barn owls have to go somewhere yeah. <laughs> but as far as like moving i don't know how we don't know how far that they'll move when they're going out and finding their own spot um
1: it's not but, a field of dream situation. No, it's, not it's, like, ex-
4: it's exactly not. an if yeah. you build it, they will come mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. So for example, um, the Barn Owl project that I have kind of taken over started um, as a nest box project for the New Hope Audubon chapter in Orange, Alamance, Chatham counties, that area. And they put up 27 of the commercially available white plastic nest boxes on beautiful habitat, just gorgeous. Not a one ever had a barn owl in it. Now, is that because there aren't barn owls there and they're not going to come just because a nest box is provided? Or is that because North Carolina barn owls tend to not like that small of a space? And they'll go find somebody's box stand and set up shop. We mm. don't know for sure um, that we are providing bigger nest boxes now as part of our project. So we're, um, we're using the 250-gallon water totes up on mm. stands, which mimics more the size of a, of a deer stand. It's big. Yeah. It's big, but they're big birds comparatively, mm-hmm. and they've got... Potentially lots of chicks. Yeah. Barn owls don't, like a chicken, they don't lay all their eggs, sit them, hatch them all at once. Um, They lay for, you know, 18 days or however long they lay for, and they hatch one after another. So you'll have a big age discrepancy between the oldest chicks and the youngest chicks, and the youngest chicks tend not to make it. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though they might lay nine eggs, you'll probably get three. Fledge, but they still take up a lot of space. um Now I say that one of the nest boxes that we know about and monitor is like a (laughs) shoebox. I was so mad when I saw that that female barn owl in there. Get out! You are messing all this whole thing up. (laughs) But they she fledged three chicks this this season, so that was exciting to see. But she did at least one point have six eggs, so they they don't fledge everything, but they do take up a lot of space. So. We'll see if um, we have a little more success with nest box usage from these bigger nest boxes than the lower plastic ones or the plywood ones that you can one see One thing,
0: One thing Allison was telling me when we were talking about this, hunters are playing a, a weird but important role in barn owl conservation, like not on purpose. Yeah. Actually the opposite of on purpose. Yes, no, but,
4: not on purpose. At all. But
0: North Carolina hunters and, and the, maybe not necessarily the folks sitting around this table, but the, kind of, the style for a lot of North Carolina hunters is get yourself a box stand where it's nice and dry, sit in there and hunt out of your box stand, right? So because that's the style, it's putting a lot of nest habitat on the landscape mm-hmm. and the way they're able to find where these birds are and monitor them and figure out why they need these different nest sizes is because of hunters and without those box stands on the landscape all we would really know about it is that they like to nest in barns right Mm -hmm. old barns Mm -hmm. so that's a weird neat role if you're a hunter and you you're pissed off because you got a a barn owl nesting in your deer stand call allison she'll help you out with that yeah and also it's it's a good thing uh i know it sucks if they're tearing up your foam office chair seat in there and and whatever because they will they'll use it for nest material but you know it's it's cool
4: i mean these are the folks that are in the woods enough Mm -hmm. to see them right so if uh, it seems like barn owls in north carolina potentially nest in the fall and the spring so we knew for sure they're spring nesters i did
0: not know fall but yeah it seems
4: like way more than I thought anyway That's that they true. are nesting in the fall. I know that there have been barn owls reported nesting, you know, throughout the world every month of the year, but we just kind of assumed in North Carolina is that one spring pulse. Not so. And you found <laughs> that
0: out because of hunters because going to their of hunters. deer
4: stands. And yeah, so we have, and thankfully, these folks are are dedicated and mm-hmm. they're out where they hunt, you know, in the early spring, they're fixing. To get their food plots in order and all that mm-hmm. stuff, so they're always around these spots uh, more than you know normal folks. Either bird watchers, as dedicated as they can be, um, out in the woods, right? They're not gonna they're not gonna see them very right. much. So yeah, you're not gonna see them at night. Yeah, thing. that's the
0: whole thing about this whole talk is you're doing something. Without knowing if it's working really unless you have them nesting in a nest box right
4: right so if hunters if you do have barn owls in your nest or in your your deer stands um you can give me a call and we can move it after um after the nesting season has finished we can put up a nest box that won't be in any way of where you're trying to hunt um but we can close up your deer stand so they can't access it anymore um put up a nest box in close enough proximity that we'll hope that they'll find it. Yep. You know, my so intention is to move some pellets and stuff over. So it still smells like home mm-hmm. close up where they have been. Cause they are pretty dedicated to, to where they nest. Um,
0: so they'll come back year after year after mm-hmm. year.
4: Yeah. What's and the
0: lifespan of a barn owl? Do we know uh, in the wild?
4: They can, they can be fairly long lived. Um, we know that some have nested, you know, Five or eight years. See, that's impressive to me. But, but I don't know if they're more on the eagle scale. You know, twenty yeah, or thirty. Yeah. Um, I we really don't know. That's why this is a cool project. Yes, we're, we, we're we learning. Have, we can only learn. Um, <laughs> there's so much to learn. And that's
0: why I, when I was prefacing this, I said that you went into something that I wish I would have done now because deer and turkeys and those things have been hammered on, hammered on, hammered on. Like, there's been so much research done on it. I feel like we're always learning new things. But there's never anything that's just groundbreaking science. Yeah. Versus something like this. I mean, there's no telling what you could find. And it may be that this new size nest box is the absolute thing to do.
4: It would be fantastic because we do know a lot about barn owls in general in the world. But like the Barn Owl Trust in the UK, they've done so much amazing work. But our barn owls are a little bigger than them. Mm -hmm. And maybe they have different preferences. um, And there's vineyards in california that just have lines of those plastic boxes and they've got barn house covering them up but not here um mm-hmm. so it's oh. it's interesting to learn though it's the same species their preference differences in different parts of the country and maybe they thought they're like there's enough nest boxes around here and people's deer stands we don't need to go in those little yeah but and old silos and old, old barn yeah, yeah. And all with the abandoned.
1: prices of plywood right now to build yeah. a to build a two hundred and fifty gallon structure, yeah, nest box, it's like that's like a we not bought gonna, that's, yeah that's, we bought two sheets and it was
0: almost a hundred dollars just last week. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that yeah, a I right? can blow a lumber budget. <laughs> <since> we're close <laughs> to twenty minutes. Let's take a, a little bit of time and transition over to the other part of your talk. Let, yeah, yeah, and I'll let you speak. I don't know Olivia Olivia won't care if we talk a little bit about bats without her. Um, but um, so the bat research, which mm-hmm. is a whole nother Forget about deer stands and barn owls for yes. a minute um, and think about the coolest places on in the state. Caves, old wells, mine shafts. This is what we're talking about. That's yeah. habitat. That's yeah. bat habitat. I mean, and also attics. Yeah, people's houses. <laughs> and your house and, and those places. But the reason we're talking about bats is because they do have an issue they that do. we know about. They do. White-nose syndrome, Yes,
4: yes. So thankfully, it seems like um, over the past few years, mortality from white-nose has leveled out. So we're not seeing those 98% mortality in in any of our hibernacula, which is the places that bats hibernate anymore. Um, But we are still on those low levels. Mm -hmm. So where, you know, some caves— And mines that we used to see, you know, bats in the thousands, we're seeing bats in the 12, you know, just a dozen. Um, And we're happy about it. Um, And when we we net, we expect uh, a particular suite of species. And sometimes we'll get some little browns, and we haven't seen little browns
0: for a long time. I wanted you to mention a couple of the species that are that we really like get excited about when we find. Yeah.
4: So it, it's weird because years ago, back before white nose, we wouldn't get excited with little Brown. So, right. you know, they were, that was one of the species that we saw all the time. I say we, that was before I started, but yes, yeah, since not, we've kind
0: of been in this white nose has been here. So yes. we've been dealing with it yes, but, since but yeah.
4: 2006, seven. Yeah. But we know that it's in North Carolina. We know that it's all in the mountains. Um, and many Piedmont counties, but we have not found it in the coastal plain yet. So that's very exciting. We know that some of our bats actually migrate through the Uaris to Mm -hmm. the coastal plain for the winter. Um, A little background about white-nose in general. It's a a fungal disease, so it's not a virus or a bacteria. Um, And how it kills is essentially it irritates the bats awake when they should be hibernating. And so they use resources that they shouldn't be using and they're not equipped to use that time yep. of year. And then they can't. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, then they it's can't.
0: awful. It's like dying from something stuck in your eye. You yeah. know how irritating it would be to have like a piece of sawdust well, in like your eye? Well, think
4: like athlete's foot or yeah. what other fungal issues that people do. It's like the itching awake and then... I'm hungry. Oh, no, there's nothing to eat.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's cold.
4: Yeah. Of course, it also can disrupt the respiratory systems and wing membranes and all that sort of thing, too. When it's in full-blown, like, you can see it on the bats. Um, but in North Carolina, down east, where it stays warm enough
1: mm-hmm. through
4: the winter, it doesn't bug them as much. Um, white-nose is definitely a, a cold-loving, or the the fungus that causes white-nose pseudo Gymnoascus destructans um there's you some latin is, that's latin yeah. darling i know is, you, you,
0: sam has never seen tombstone i'm just putting that, I'm putting it out for everybody to know he's never seen the movie tombstone shame. you ever seen
4: movie? of course i have of course i'm yeah. an american i've seen tombstone
0: everybody's seen it except sam um
4: so it seems like down east is a is kind of a a safe haven for for white nose mm-hmm. bats and it's not, a, in the Piedmont and the Coastal Plain particularly, White Nose is not a, a for sure death sentence. They can shake it off if they can find enough to eat and drink um, during the winter, which typically we have those warm spells. Yep. So they're all right. But up north where it was first discovered, wiping them out because it's just too cold. Um, and they they get it by contact with each other so you expect it in those big cave Mm -hmm. chains Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I think folks are more aware of that now than ever with mm -hmm. COVID-19 like people get how that works now yeah yeah (laughs) and uh, yeah it's I mean it's happening to them yep bad deal Um, when when these guys when Allison and Olivia and everybody they're doing these surveys it's full on basically hazmat gear Tyvek suits that are desanitized, sanitized sanitized every single time before they go in. And then they're sanitized when they come out, they never wear the same gear to multiple different places to survey because they don't want to transfer this disease. If it's present or even if it's not, you just don't want to be moving. It's kind of like moving your boat from one lake to the other. You're supposed to wash it off. So Mm -hmm. you don't take algae and things to the Mm -hmm. other spot. Same thing. Um, but the technical aspects, a lot more than just that. I mean, you guys are taking full on climbing gear, Mm -hmm. um, and rappelling down, in, I mean, personally watched you rappel down in some holes that were absolutely terrifying. Yes, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yes, terrifying. They were. What
1: uh What time are we at?
0: Because we're, we're gonna we
1: twenty seven minutes. I'm stopping d- yeah. at thirty. Yeah, because we're gonna record a full episode here in a minute. So I'm just this is a perfect, this is a perfect a little teaser. this is a perfect little taste. Yep. And I think the great thing about this, like Cody mentioned right at the beginning, is we have a lot of different people. Listen, obviously we talk about hunting and and that sort of thing a lot because that's what we like to do and, um, land conservation. But I think we have a lot of listeners. We've been surprised by having a lot of listeners who don't necessarily fit into that niche Mm -hmm. and that are very interested in the non game stuff as are we, I'm very interested in the non game stuff and I want to learn more and I don't know as much like Cody said, there's so many scientific papers and studies about game species and I'm actually, you know, I get as much joy from seeing an owl in the woods as I do anything else. So, um, if you're interested in this and you're like, oh, well, the Habitat Summit's just for hunting and land management. Well, obviously it's not. We've got a little bit of everything, and I think it's a great reason to come out. And even if
0: you're into hunting, like the talk yeah. these guys are going to yeah. I was
1: the one who was vetting the
0: papers mm-hmm. that were coming in for the proposals. Mm-hmm. I got Allison's, and everybody else's. I didn't care what everybody else sent. No mm-hmm. kidding. It was the absolute best one I got. Mm-hmm. Just excellent. So yeah, yeah. I'm fired up to come hear them talk. And you will be too. And I think the pictures you're going to get to see with their presentation will be worth worth it just right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Super come cool. come see them at the Habitat Summit. You'll get to meet Allison in person and uh, hear all the cool stories she's got. Friday, October eighth, Morseville. All right, that's enough of this. You're rarely going to hear a pre-recorded commercial on this podcast. We don't like the forced way of salesmanship, and we're not salesmen. We're not even podcasters. We're We're wildlife guys and conservationists, and that's what we do for a living. And this podcast is just one of those things that just came along with it kind of uh, on its own. But with that said, we don't want to forget about our gracious sponsors who are conservationists. They support local conservation here in the region, and they're conservationists themselves. Um, Backcountry and Beyond, they're, they're the premier sponsor of this podcast. They've been with us since the beginning. And uh, we would like for you guys to go check them out and support them by supporting them. You're supporting us. And also you're just going to be supporting yourself because they've got really, really cool stuff that you're not going to find just anywhere. Um, everything from the full Traeger line to sauces and spices to a paddleboard to get out on the lake to, a uh, uh e-bike if you're if you're looking for a new bike they've got the e-bikes the quiet Cat brand e-bikes um all kinds of apparel just neat stuff uh yeti the full yeti lineup anything you might need for getting outside they really are backcountry and beyond the bio light stove which you hear me talk about all the time just really cool intuitive gear and those guys are just a great group to, to go shop from so go check them out backcountry and beyond either online or in the store um with well, that said you should not forget about uh, Lost Highway Gun Dog Kennels. You hear Grayson Geyer on the podcast every now and then. We've had him on several times. Um, you know what he's about. He's about training the trainer, he's about producing a quality gun dog and a quality partnership between you and your dog. Um check him out, he's got a ton of resources at Lost Highway Gun Dog Kennels, and uh he'd love to help you out. He's a, just a great guy and a great trainer. Um also check out Traveler Trading Company, happens to be friends with Grayson Geyer, by the way. Um, they've been a sponsor of ours now for a while and traveler trading company, they're a leather goods service. They, they, they make all kinds of leather goods and, and the premier belt of the podcast, if we have such a thing, the uh, big iron belt that we named here on the show, can't say enough for an outdoorsman. Um, you're needing a belt. The big iron belt is a great way to go. If you're a concealed carry guy or gal, um, the big iron Belt's one of those. It's aptly named. It can tote your big iron just fine. So check out Traveler Trading Co. Also Rock Outdoors Highway Eight in Lexington. Boat Mega Store is one way to put it, and I'm talking about nice stuff. They've got everything fishing you can think of. They're they're really uh, you've heard a podcast or two where we were talking with uh, some professional bass anglers. Um, if you're a bass guy or gal, this is the store for you. They've got everything, the hottest new lures. They know what they're getting special orders in from local local manufacturers they're uh, always on the cutting edge of, of the bass world so go check them out if you're a bass angler if you're a boat enthusiast if you're an outdoors person they've got a ton of camping gear kayak stuff kayak right now kayaking is super intense and everybody's into it they're actually really hard to find right now rock outdoors is one of those places you can go you can Check them out, see which ones you like, get some good recommendations. Shane from the YouTube channel, Monkeying Around, he actually works there um, as his day job. You can check him out, talk to him. He's going to give you all the intel you need on kayak camping and that kind of thing. So Highway 8, Rock Outdoors, Lexington. Um, Lastly, let's not forget about Wolf and Iron. And we don't mention them enough, but they're on my mind every day. They're actually on my beard every day for for too much information, I guess, um, Wolf and Iron, they're bringing quality natural beard products and, and manly grooming products. They've got all kinds of stuff on their website, Wolf and Iron. Um, they've got books on guide, a guy's guide to pocket knives. They've got really cool stationery. If you still into the old school way of, of sending cards, they've got really cool Cards with you know iconic conservation figures like Teddy Roosevelt. They name some of their beard products after you know John Muir. They've got a Black Beard, you know, beard balm. It's it's just a really cool way to groom yourself, and also support something local that's also supporting conservation. So check out Wolf and Iron. Um, They're supporters of us, and we support them. So check them out. Check out all our great sponsors. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We, uh, we thank you as a listener for, for being a part of it. We've been, been able to keep this show going now for quite some time with very little interruption. And uh, we're very grateful to have you listening, and we hope that you'll continue to do so. If you like the content and you'd like it to keep coming, you should still know that this podcast is just one of the tools that we use here at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose has always been to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife to ensure that they have habitats forever here in North Carolina. The podcast is just a byproduct further that mission. To be a part of the team in the fight for the conservation mission, you should visit our website at www.3riverslandtrust.org.